Just a heads up, this episode has some mature themes and some really mature language. If you've got kids in the room, you might want to send them away, or at least put on some headphones. Hi, and welcome to The Backlot. I'm Tova Leiter, moderator and director of the New York Film Academy guest lecture series. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at one of my great guests and hear about his experience in the entertainment industry. And now, Eric Conner will take you through the highlights of this Q&A. Hi, I'm Eric Conner. In this episode, we have Seth Rogen, a man of many talents. He gave the world McLovin and Superbad, was the most unlikely of romantic leads in Knocked Up, gleefully staged the demise of his best friends in This Is The End, yet made the death of a hot dog high tragedy in the wonderfully filthy Sausage Party. I am McLovin. McLovin? Badass. I'm not gonna punch her in the head, she's really sweet. No, I mean, you punch her in the fucking head emotionally. I swear to God, I want to see Breathless at the LACMA. I remember thinking, how much would $20 possibly buy you a Taco Bell? And the answer is infinite. Love the most beautiful, shining, warmy thing in the world, you can't accept it? Seth Rogen started his career before he was even old enough to drive, honing his stand-up skills in Vancouver during his freshman year of high school. You know, when I did stand-up comedy, I was actually very, like, reluctant to talk about my age at first because I didn't want it to be viewed as, like, a gimmick. I didn't want to be, like, known as a 15-year-old comedian. So I would tell jokes that were, like, Seinfeld-esque, like, kind of observational humor. Like, what's the deal with crazy glue? What's so crazy about it? And then I remember another comic pulled me aside and was like, dude, like, you're fucking 16 years old. Like, you're trying to get a hand job for the first time right now. Like, that <laughs> is, like, a remarkable perspective to have comedically as a writer, as an actor, whatever you're trying to do. That is, like, a remarkable perspective to have, and you shouldn't deny that that was like a very interesting lesson for me was to accept my age and not deny it but at the same time to never try to use my age as like a gimmick and be like the young comedian you know that always like i hated that idea and writing super bad was really that like finding the balance between doing work that i thought was adult and transcended the fact that i was a teenager but at the same time do work that could only be done by a teenager and offer a perspective that you could only have if you were in high school. And literally, like, Superbad was on TV the other day, and I was watching it, and I was like, I could never write this movie today because I'm too old, and I don't know what the fuck kids do in high school. I'm terrified of high school kids. So I think that is just something that I thought a lot about when I was younger, is how do I use my age and at the same time not use my age because people will just always hate the guy who seems like he's using his age but you just aren't using all your tools if you are not using your perspective which is entirely based on your age his stand-up and unique perspective caught the attention of judd apatow and paul feig who were casting their seminal comedy drama freaks and geeks possibly the best show ever made about high school life Disco sucks! What's up your butt, princess? Sorry, it's hard to pick up on the subtlety of your wit. You know, I had a friend that used to smoke. You know what he's doing now? He's dead. Freaks and Geeks and Apatow's follow-up, Undeclared, also introduced Mr. Rogan to many of his favorite collaborators. 
Most of the people I work with, I've known since before I was 20 years old, like Judd and Franco and Jason Siegel and uh, Martin Starr and Jay Baruchel and, you know, a lot of the writers and directors I work with. I met them all through work, except the people that I grew up with. Kyle are the people who wrote this movie, basically. Those are the only ones I've known, like, from growing up and being like a child. Um, I met Evan in bar mitzvah class, so I've known him since I was uh, 12. I met Ariel at summer camp. Um, I met Kyle at home at class in eighth grade. <laughs> and we all wanted to be writers. And so we just kept working together over the years. Um, everyone else I met through work and what originally drew us together was each other's work. And I think beyond that, it's what made us take the time to get to know one another and then become personally good friends with one another over the years. But when you're working, it's really hard to do something that feels good a lot of the time. So when you find people that around whom it feels good, you desperately want that, you know? And it's like an insulation. Like, nothing makes me more secure feeling creatively than seeing basically all the people who are in this movie in close vicinity to me. If I'm on set, like, I feel so much better if Jonah or Franco or Craig or Danny are there, because I'm just like, they're just incredible at their jobs. Of the hundred things I have to worry about, being a producer, a writer, a director, that is not fucking one of them. Like, they'll just destroy it. And, and in a lot of ways, they're the most visible element of the film. So it just is a huge stress relief. It makes you not have to worry about it. And on top of that, we just like each other. But if I fucking hated these people, I would still work with them all the time, honestly, because they're great at their jobs. His career could not have started on a better note, but it wasn't always smooth sailing. I was very lucky in that I got on a TV show very young, but then I went years without working. And I did for sure start to think that like Freaks and Geeks was like an anomaly. And I was only cast because I was a fucking weird looking Canadian guy. <laughs> and, and once that was over, no one would ever want to put me in anything again. And that wasn't that far from the truth, honestly. You know, Undeclared was canceled in like 2001. And I didn't act again until 40-Year-Old Virgin, which came out in 2005. It all makes sense! You're a virgin! I am... Shut up! How does that happen? He's a fucking virgin. Oh, I knew it! That makes so much sense, man! He's a virgin! You guys, whoa, 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 you guys are hilarious. All right, all so right. there was four years where I did absolutely nothing. And it was really during that time that I definitively learn that if I wanted to have a career as an actor, I first had to get a career as a writer and a producer, and then I had to cast myself as an actor, essentially, which is basically what I did. The only reason I was cast in Knocked Up is because I had been working with Judd as a writer. I'm pregnant. Fuck off. What? What? I'm pregnant. With emotion? With a baby. You're the father. And I'd been helping him rewrite his movies, so I was just like a guy who was around him, you know? And on 40-Year-Old Virgin, I was cast in that because I was a producer on it first. Then the movies we wrote, we wrote for myself to star in. There was probably better people we could have gotten, honestly, but it just seemed, again, like the only way to perpetuate my career as an actor was to provide myself with that work. And if I didn't do that, I would have acted in like two fucking movies in the last decade, literally. I did not think there was like a room full of Hollywood people being like, you know what we need is like a stone Jewish Canadian guy. Like, I just knew that that conversation wasn't happening. And so I 
I had to be the one creating the material that required a stoned Jewish Canadian guy. <laughs> and I knew that was my only way to do it, basically. And if you're only an actor and can't write for yourself or create your own material otherwise, then I always just tell people, like, then become friends with the writer because they always need actors for their shit and become friends with the director because they always need actors for their shit. And so just link up with someone who has a job you can't do. His friends would say, stop whining. They've had enough of that. His friends would say, stop pining. There's other girls to look at. But there's something about Mary that they don't know. Mary. There's just something. To me, like, about there's something Mary. about Mary. It was one of those movies that I watched in high school. And to me, that shifted the parameters of comedy. And then the South Park movie came out when I was in high school. Other times I said you were a big dumb Jew. I didn't mean it. You're not a Jew. Yes, I am. I am a Jew, Cartman. No, no, Kyle, don't be so hard on yourself. It was like one of those moments where you're like, oh, wow, like, movies can be so much more than I thought they could be. Like, it was like the most shocking thing I'd ever, I could not believe what I was seeing. And so... We're standing on the dicks of giants. <laughs> yeah. Much of Mr. Rogan's inspiration comes directly from his parents' love for all types of movies. My parents were just into movies. Like, they liked movies. They would go to a lot of movies. We had, like, a big VHS collection that my parents would, like, tape off of television. So it's funny, because lots of them were, like, fucked up, not the right versions of movies. Like, I didn't know they smoked weed in the Breakfast Club till like, three years ago, because, like... <laughs> that was edited out for television. But I really look at the movies that my parents had growing up and it is like a direct reflection of the stuff that I now make. There was like Woody Allen movies and Robert Zemeckis movies and some incredibly violent Paul Verhoeven. My mom was like a huge Paul Verhoeven fan and she loved Die Hard and she was a big Steven Seagal fan and a big Jean-Claude Van Damme fan. So I was inundated with like incredibly violent movies from a very young age and incredibly like intellectual comedic movies from a very young age. And my friends, we just had like a disgusting sensibility. And I think the combination of those three things are why I make the types of movies I make. But I, I really think it's just because I watched a lot of movies when I was a kid and I loved movies. Mr. Rogan also acknowledges that growing up in Canada gave him a unique perspective on American comedies. What I honestly think it is, is because I've also worked with like British comedians before and they're hilarious, but they don't quite understand like American culture to the degree they probably need to in order to like really infiltrate it you know what i mean but canadians grow up with american culture but it's not our culture so we view it as though it's like this other thing kind of but we know it all we get the grind all that mtv shit i grew up watching you know um so we grew up with all this american shit but we didn't view it as our shit and so we probably were a little more inclined to make fun of it well and to comment on it well because i think when you're like outside of something you're in a slightly better position to comment on it. And so I think that's why a lot of Canadians do well in American comedy, because they comment well on American culture, and it's not their culture, so they're not as 
you know, attached to it. They're, they're a little more objective about it, I guess. If there's a hallmark to Mr. Rogan's work, it's finding the heart within the crudest of moments. I think it's different things for different people. Uh, for us, it's having a very simple emotional story that through all the insanity is very clear and identifiable and articulatable, I don't know if that's a word, by the people who saw the movie afterwards. And Superbad is, is very similar, and that was where we really learned the lesson. It's really about like two friends who don't know how to say they miss each other. And because of that, it allows us to like get period blood on one of their legs. Someone period on my fucking leg? Oh shit. <laughs> what the fuck do I do? I've never before seen that in my life. This is so disgusting. And do all sorts of crazy shit that like would otherwise be appalling were it not surrounding what is like a very sweet emotional center. I, lo I love you. I'm not embarrassed. It's like, why don't we say that every day? Why can't we say it more often? And so for us, we talk a lot about balance and balancing emotion with crudeness and balancing intelligence with stupidity. And I think balance is the most important thing in making a comedy and finding the elements that you want to balance and striking that balance between what genres you're trying to mix, which is something we've done in our work before. and. I think that is the most important thing because that's what makes a movie unpredictable is when you don't know which one of those things it's going to be, but it, it, it's all those things. Drone. I'm just, I'm a little nervous. I just found out we have to play Hail to the Chief when Bush arrives. I can see it now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the FBI announced today that North Korea have the state mount an all-out assault on a movie studio because of a satirical movie starring Seth Rogen and James Flacco. I love Seth and I love James, but the notion that that was a, a threat to them, I think gives you some sense of, of uh, the kind of uh, regime we're talking about here. Katy Perry? Oh, uh, oh yeah. <laughs> You know, my wife must have put that in there because I've never heard this before in my life. I love Katy Perry. You know, Dave, sometimes I feel like a plastic bag. Drifting through the wind? Wanting to start again. Oh, oh. As you should across the sky. In 2013, his twisted sensibility attracted some unwanted attention with the release of his film, The Interview. On the eve of the movie's premiere, Sony experienced a massive hack in response to the movie's satirical themes. One student asked about how this incident affected Mr. Rogan's approach to filmmaking. Um, I don't know. I don't think it reshaped. If anything, I guess it told me that if you make a movie about something, then the subject of that something could really react to it in a very strong way. And so in a way, I guess it reinforced what I always thought was the power of filmmaking, which was if you antagonize a worthy subject, then that is something that people will probably get behind. And what I didn't predict is that subject perhaps attacking the movie studio that was releasing the film. But honestly, I don't fucking know if North Korea hacked into Sony. I don't even know. And no one does. And so, um, 
so it's hard to really learn that many lessons from something that you don't even quite know what the fuck happened. <laughs> One lesson I could have learned was to like tone down what could be considered controversial <laughs> filmmaking, and I clearly did not do that. <laughs> and so I guess I didn't learn any lessons. Uh, I think as a movie, when I look at it, there are some things story-wise that we could have tightened. And I think honestly, like on a narrative level, there were some filmmaking lessons I learned. It was the second movie we directed. So you just learn a lot from that. So just as a filmmaker, there was a lot I learned just from making my second movie and the kind of things that worked and the things that didn't. But I don't know if I really learned a lot from what happened, because again, I don't really know what happened. Fortunately, most of Mr. Rogan's projects have gone much more smoothly. As a producer, Mr. Rogan never loses sight of the bottom line, no matter the scale of the production. We've made movies in very different ways, um, spanning from like the most studio of ways to the most independent of ways. And part of, you know, what we think is like a big part of the question is like budgeting the movies properly. Like we've never had the philosophy that we should just get like as much money for every movie as humanly possible. We'll look at the movie and think like realistically, how much does a movie like this make? We probably shouldn't make it for that much more than that because we just want to keep making movies. Like 50-50 is an example of a movie that we'd made completely independently, but then we sold it to a studio before it came out. I would like to present to you what I have grown to call Exhibit Whore! Look at it! That's Rachel! And that's a filthy Jesus-looking motherfucker! And they're kissing! I did it! I fucking nailed you! I've hated you for months! And now I have evidence that you suck as a person! It's all different. Uh, they all have their ups and downs. I have never, like, financed a movie myself. I've put money into our movies for little things here and there, but I've never, like, fully, like, paid for something, because other assholes are willing to do that. <laughs> <laughs> After 70-something roles, he's now enjoying his work more behind the camera. Acting, I probably like the least, to be totally honest. It, it just, like, is not the most engaging of all the jobs on set to me. You're, like, kind of not doing shit, like, 80% of the time. <laughs> to me, that is very frustrating, and I don't like it. Directing, on the other hand, is probably the most active job you can have on set. You're literally doing something 100% of the time. I really like that, and I, I like being hyper-engaged. Directing has probably become the most enjoyable thing to me, um, and writing is also very fun because it's kind of like the most familiar thing, and it's kind of the thing we're always doing amidst all of it as producers is constantly reading other people's scripts and helping with them and having meetings with the writers of those scripts and talking to them about it. And, and at the same time, we're generally writing one of our own movies. But on a day-to-day -day basis, directing has been incredibly fun. And, and it's very engaging. And so I think right now that is, is our favorite thing to do. A student asked Mr. Rogan about how he approaches working with a variety of actors. I think to just do your thing, honestly. Like, 
I've noticed no consistency between how these actors work. And as a director, I've noticed actually incredible inconsistencies in what different actors respond to. Like some actors, I realized solely if I was in the scene with them, they just wouldn't listen to my direction. Like it just, they just wouldn't listen. Just something happened, you know? And I would literally have to tell my partner, like, tell him this. And other actors are completely unlike that. And so, you know, when I was in that Steve Jobs movie, I honestly was worried, like, is, is what I do as an actor in any way going to mesh with how this movie is expected to be made? Mm. I'm talking you about... You guys designed and shipped a little box of garbage while I was gone. I'm talking about the Apple II, which is not just a crucial part of this company's history, it is a crucial part of the history of personal computing. For a time. The least you can do if you're going to downsize these people... They're going to live in the biggest houses of anyone on the unemployment ...is to market. acknowledge them. And I instantly found that everyone working on the movie worked completely differently in and of themselves and that there is no correct way to do it there's only what makes you feel like you're confident in what you're doing and so i guess i don't i don't know if that's good advice is just do you but i think feeling confident in what you're doing is the most important thing and whatever makes you feel confident in your performance because that's the one thing that is bad is when actors start losing confidence in themselves on set. It's like babysitting a lot of the time, honestly. <laughs> you discern what each person needs to be the best version of themselves, I guess, and, and then you just do it. When dealing with some of his more sensitive material, Mr. Rogan has learned that honesty is the best policy. I recently found the email I sent to Channing Tatum when I asked him to be the gimp and this is the end. This is my gimp. Channing, introduce yourself. Hey, what's up, man? That's Channing Tatum, dude. What the fuck? Channing fucking Tatum. I found him wandering on the freeway. I collected him, made him my bitch. Get off my dick. I call him Channing Tate Yum. And what I was amazed by was how, like, plain it was. Because <laughs> I was very concerned that he would show up and, and in some way be expecting something different. So I was literally like, this is the movie. You are playing Danny McBride, sexual gimp. It will require you to be at the end of a leash. Uh, he yanks you around. He talks about how you're his bitch, how you're an idiot. Like, like I was like, if you have a problem with any of this, just don't do it. Because that's like the nightmare is if they show up and they're like 99% on board, then that 1% is like a fucking real chasm to navigate at times. And I get very nervous around actors, honestly. Like, I don't like, like, as a director, like, talking to actors is, like, by far my least favorite thing to do because I get nervous. I'm like, what if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? Like, I just don't like talking to them. And so even if I'm friends with them, I don't like talking to them. I'm more comfortable talking to them if I'm friends with them, which is probably a reason I work with my friends so much because I'm for sure more comfortable talking to my friends. But, like, when you have to, like, tell, like, give, like, Eminem direction, like, it's fucking horrifying. You know, when I say things about gay people and people think that my lyrics are homophobic, mm -hmm. you know, it's because I'm gay. Um, when I rap about violence Wait, or... Let's just back it up a moment. You just said that you were gay? Um, I mean, I'm gay. I'm a homosexual. Meaning? I like men. What the fuck just happened? Eminem just said he was gay four times. That's what the fuck just happened. Holy shit. Holy shit. And again, the only thing that makes it slightly less horrifying is because I've made it incredibly clear the types of things I was going to ask him to do before he showed up that day. Because again, like I would so much rather have an, my second choice 
who's 100% committed than my first choice, who's 99.9% committed. Because the last thing you need is on set, having to navigate a sudden difference in sensibilities or a, a lack of understanding over what the movie or TV show or whatever it was was going to entail. That's kind of like the philosophy for, for everything is like, you don't want to have to be convincing people to do things on set. You want them to be psyched on set. You want that to be the most joyous experience for everyone possible. And, you know, that's when everything is hypothetical when you're filming the movie. It's not until you're editing it that you actually have to deal with all the shit that happened. Like, set, there's like no reason to ever be unhappy. It should only be a pleasant, creative experience where you're just getting as much as you humanly can that you think you might need and the only way to do that again is if everyone is fully trusting and fully on board and the only way to do that is if you've really gone out of your way to explain to them that you know you don't want them surprised at the premiere even after his many successes it still took a decade to get this sausage party started once you see that shit it'll fuck you up for life good luck have fun <laughs> um, it was, there was a lot of hard parts. Um, it was, uh, <laughs> see, writing it was not the hardest part, clearly. They, <laughs> these jokes write themselves. Um, getting it made was incredibly hard. Finding someone to agree to pay for it was very difficult. Um, it took us literally years and years and years of going on meetings and being told no by independent financing companies by major studios. Every basic way you could be told no is how we were told no. And then someone named Megan Ellison was the coolest person ever and basically like made it her thing to like make movies that no one else wanted to make. And ours was for sure that. And so she uh, co-financed the movie with Sony. So that was really difficult. The actual process of making was very difficult. We'd never made an animated movie. It was very different um, than anything we'd done. There was a moment in the process where like, shit, if we're like kind of making fun of a Pixar movie, it kind of has to be around as smart as a Pixar movie. And I remember that moment we were like, fuck. And <laughs> there was a definitive moment like halfway through the process where we realized we had to make the movie significantly better than it seemed like it was going to be. And that was a very difficult time as well. As Mr. Rogan's work shows, he marches to the beat of his own drum. When I was younger, I didn't give a shit. I like was so confident and I was like 18 and 19 when I moved to LA and I was just like, fuck everyone, they're wrong, I'm right, ah. Like I was really aggressive and confident and it's over the years as I've read like thousands of articles just saying what an idiot I am. I'm like, fuck, maybe I should just stop. When I was younger, honestly, I look back and marvel at how little I thought about whether or not other people thought I was funny when I was first starting. It was all, I think I'm good at this, I'm just gonna do it. And I think I can do something different in movies, so I'm just gonna try to write movies. I was very angry, I would get bitter and angry a lot, but I just was like, the more I didn't succeed, I would just get more angry and try even harder to do my shit. I mean, this movie, like, 
we've been trying to make it for 10 years and like we were successful when that happened like it's not like like when we tried to make it was like after pineapple express and super bad and all of like our big hit movies had come out and still nobody wanted to fucking make it and so we just whenever that happens you just have to really make sure that it's a good idea and that's by trusting the people around you and making sure you've surrounded yourself by people who will be honest with you and give you good constructive criticism and if the consensus is it's a good idea then you just do it until it occurs and you do other things meanwhile like we made like six movies that aren't as good as this while we were trying to make this but you know you got to keep going just in some way but the whole time we were trying to make this as well just never stop that's the idea i guess as he was wrapping up Mr. Rogan reminded our students to be original and bold with their own work. This movie was our craziest idea. And most people who we told this idea to looked at us like we were fucking idiots and like it wouldn't work. And our best movies are always the ideas that are the craziest ones. And if I see like a lack of one thing in movies, I don't see a ton of people making stuff where you're just like, what the fuck? Like, how did they do that? And that is like all I ever want to go see in movie theaters is movies where like, I'm literally wondering how it got made, you know? Those are like, as a kid, the best experiences I had. I think like, if I hope any of you take anything from this, it's that I'm sitting in a movie theater in a few years watching a movie where I'm thinking like, how the fuck did people make this? Please make those movies. Make movies that people are like, how did they do it? Thanks to Seth Rogen for coming to our school, and thanks to all of you for listening. This episode was written by me, Eric Connor, based on the guest speaker series produced and moderated by Toba Leiter. The episode was edited and mixed by Christian Hayden, produced by David Andrew Nelson, Christian Hayden, and myself. Executive produced by Toba Leiter, Jean Sherlock, and Dan Mackler. Associate produced by Vinny Sisson. A special thanks to Robert Cosnahan, Saja Johnson, and the staff and crew who made this possible. To learn more about our programs, check us out at nyfa.edu. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. See you next time. I am McLovin.